trying to find a place to sit down. If you're, uh, there's some spaces between you, would you kind of scoot to the middle and make a little room? Nobody really wants to climb over you to get to their seat, so uh, if you make some room on the edges, it would be helpful. <clears throat> We've begun a series this, uh, this last week on the book of Matthew. And today we'll be in Matthew chapter 18. We'll be looking at the first six verses, if you want to take a look at it. Um, we've been talking specifically about the kingdom of heaven. Oh, look at that. We just went to another thing. Could you uh, switch me over there, Ernie? We, uh, we've been specifically looking about the kingdom of heaven. The reason we're discussing the kingdom of heaven in, in the book of Matthew in particular is because Matthew is the only gospel writer who uses the term kingdom of heaven. And he uses it 32 times. He has a lot to say and he's he's aimed at that one phrase over and over and over and over again. And we talked about last week, why? Why is he so interested in this? Why this particular phrase? Why he's coming at this idea so much? And as you recall last week, when we were discussing it, we talked about the fact that... Sorry, we'll go back. Don't get too distracted by those guys. We talked about the fact that his... Particular, particular perspective on the kingdom of heaven relates especially to his time. Matthew is written between 60 and 65 A.D. Does anyone remember what happens in 70 A.D.? Rome destroys the city of Jerusalem. The Israelites rebel against the Romans, and the Romans, in their quelling that rebellion, come in and just decimate the place. That's all on the horizon. The zealousness is beginning to build as Matthew writes this book. And I think God is inspiring him by the Holy Spirit to speak into the issue of the true kingdom of God. Because one of the reasons that the people of Israel are rebelling against Rome is because they believe that the kingdom of God is a tactile place, a real physical place, that has a real physical king, that their community, their country, is the kingdom of God on earth. And last week... We made a comment that I know is a little controversial with some of you, but here it is. There is no kingdom of heaven on earth. There's only a kingdom of heaven in heaven. You know, we all talk about our little slice of heaven. Oh, here I am in my neighborhood and I look out my backyard and there's a five acre park that somebody else mows. It's my little slice of heaven. Well, it's a very small slice. It might be a sliver. It might be a speck. Or it might be a tiny little dot. It's really nothing like heaven. Heaven is beyond our wildest imaginings. What God has planned for us is greater than we can think, greater than we can imagine, better than we can ever conceive. So as we talk about it, what I think Matthew is doing, and I'd like you to read through the book kind of with these glasses on, what I think Matthew is doing is trying to reframe their thinking and our thinking about the kingdom of heaven, okay? Today I want to talk specifically about the disciples of Jesus in one particular incident where they ask the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And what's the obvious answer to that? Come on, you've got to have the answer to this. What's the obvious answer to who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? God is, Jesus is. Those are the answers to who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, right? Why are you asking this question? What a goofy question. The greatest of all time. Who's going to be the greatest of all time? There is the greatest of all time. Sometimes Jerry Rice is called the goat because goat is what he was called by one of his coaches when he went to play for the Raiders. They called him the goat, the greatest of all time. The greatest of all time. This guy always talks about being the greatest of all time. I'm the greatest. Float like a butterfly, sing like, sing like a bee. 
I am the greatest, Muhammad Ali. Right? The greatest of all time. All of us have a little bit of this disease. All of us have a little bit of this. I am the best teacher in my school. Sorry for the rest of you. I am the smartest kid in the 12th grade. I know my grades don't show that, but you all know it's true. (laughs) I am the best voice in the choir. They put me in the back so that I don't embarrass the rest of you all. (laughs) Right? We all have a little bit of that flavor in our life. I'm the best, I'm the best, I'm the best. We all kind of compare ourselves and we kind of push ourselves up there. Secretly we want to be or think we are the best (coughs) at something. And you start going through your list. I know some of you have been beaten out of some of those bests, right? The older we get, the more likely we are to realize we're not the best at some things. I used to have the best hair in my school. I can show you pictures. But that's all I can show you. Eventually, as you get a little older, these things kind of get straightened out. You start to realize there are some other people who have some skills. You go off to college and realize there are some smart people in my college. You start going to work at a different job and you realize, oh, man, I may not be the best electrician in California. Right? You start moving around. You start realizing, oh, man, this guy in my practice, he's a better dentist than I am. And just start recognizing that maybe in some of those areas. So we pick another area. Right? We start looking for an obscure area to be the greatest at. I am the greatest at alphabet soup of all time. And the more obscure, the more likely that it's true. All of us have a little bit of this interest, a little bit of this disease, a little bit of this want to be elevated, to be elevated. We're specifically talking about this period of time, and we talked last week about that very particular place. Thank you, Rennie. Recognize the place? It's Masada. It's the last stand for the zealots who rebelled in 70 AD. It was their last stand, their, their place where they would finally stand against the Romans. And in fact, when, the, when it became clear that the Romans were going to overrun Masada, the people inside committed mass suicide and mass genocide. They killed one another off and the last few killed themselves. Why? They didn't want to be slaves to the Romans. They didn't want the Roman kingdom to control them. And for their zeal against an earthly kingdom and their zeal to have an earthly kingdom, they all died. How many of us are killing ourselves to cut out our little slice of heaven? Well, we may not be using a sword, but that 80-hour week you're fighting for, it's not working. You cut out a kingdom with your wallet and you lose the kingdom of your family. Getting a right grip on this thing is as current an issue as it's ever been. This morning, just a quick look at the disciples. What should have been the obvious answer to the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He humbled himself and became obedient. How did he get to be the greatest? He humbled himself. And became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly... Who who has? God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. 
So who is the greatest? Who's number one? Numero uno, the greatest of all time. Really? Jesus. Can you get better than that? At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Matthew begins as we move towards Jesus progressing toward Jerusalem. Jesus has told them, we're going up to Jerusalem where I will be killed. And as that process begins to unfold, Matthew starts to get very specific about timing. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. And he starts to get very chronological with the book. And as he's moving through a very chronological order, it's very interesting that he chose this little phrase, at that time time. If you were to to go and try to really translate it with the absolute best English translation, it would be at that hour. So in that very moment, at that moment, at that specific time. So he's saying right at this time, right after this, this happened at that time. So what's the time? Chapter 17, verses one and two. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John and his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before you. Remember this story? Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. He goes up on a mountain, and they encounter God personally. Moses and Elijah meet them on top of the mountain. At that time, they ask who's the greatest in the kingdom. Peter, James, and John had seen the greatest of the kingdom. They had seen Jesus surrounded by the Father. They had heard the Father's voice from heaven. And at that time, in that context, in the midst of that, they want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Didn't impress you. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why can we not cast out this, this, this uh, demon? Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. A young boy had been brought to the other disciples as they were, as Jesus, Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain, had brought to the other disciples, and they, the father said, Cast this demon out, heal my son. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Jesus comes down and he does it. And the disciples say, why couldn't we do that? What was the problem? And he says, because of your unbelief. Because you lack a prayer life. You lack a connection with God. And in the face of that, in that context, they asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In that context. Still in chapter 17. Now while they were staying, staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised again. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. But in that time, in that context, they still asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is this a pretty deep-rooted disease in the heart of mankind? Here they are. They've, they've, some of them have been on the mountain for the transfiguration. And they ask. Some of them have beat down because they don't have enough faith to take out this, this demon. Jesus has just said, I'm going to be crucified. And in that context, they asked, who's the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Chapter 17, verse 24. When he had come to Capernaum, seems like an odd thing to throw into this vision, into this list. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter. Now, why would Matthew pay attention to people who had received taxes? Matthew's a tax collector. Tax collectors catch his attention. Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Peter said, sure he does. Yeah, he does. Now, have you ever heard of Jesus paying the temple tax before? 
Me neither, but Peter assumes that he does. When he had come into the house, <clears throat> Jesus anticipating him saying, what do you th- said, what do you think, Simon, for whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? So who do you think? Who do kings collect taxes from? Abby? Strangers. It's terrible if I know your name, isn't it, Abby? I know a lot of your names. (laughs) Who do the kings collect taxes from? Their own kids or from strangers? Strangers, obviously, right? Peter replies, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, note the nevertheless. He is saying, I am the king. I don't have to pay temple taxes. I'm God. (laughs) Nevertheless, nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take a fish that comes up first. Now, a lot of us love this particular little, little miracle because it seems so accessible, right? You can go down to the, to the lake, throw in a, a hook, pull out a fish, and there might be a coin in his mouth. Have you ever looked? Be honest. When he opened its mouth, when you open its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Nevertheless, in spite of the fact that I am the king of the universe, in spite of the fact that I am the king of kings, in spite of the fact that I created these people, in spite of the fact that I told them to build the temple, go ahead. In the context where Peter had just seen Jesus submit and humble himself to this tax collector, they asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? When you read Desire of Ages about this, it's an interesting picture. The disciples are all standing around. They want to ask this question. Who do you think is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're probably having a debate. Well, I'm going to be the greatest because I'm taller than you. Well, I'm going to be the greatest because I'm smarter than you. Well, I'm going to be the greatest because Jesus likes me better than you. Whatever the case, they're having a conversation about this. And the picture is, here's our buddy Peter, who's been down fishing, collecting temple taxes. When he gets back, they get their voice. When he gets back to the group, you know, Peter's always the one who speaks up. When they get back to the group, when he gets back to the group, finds out what everybody's talking about, Peter goes to Jesus. So the voice that you're actually hearing, apparently, is Peter's, who says, we have a little question. We have a a little question. It's not a big deal, really. But who then, who then, since we've been on the Mount of Transfiguration, who then, since our unbelief kept us from doing what we should have been able to do, who then, since the crucifixion is coming right, right quick. Who then, since you humbled yourself before the tax collector, who then will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, 
What does converted mean? What does converted imply? That there needs to be a transformation in their hearts, right? That these guys still don't get it, right? Now, they've been following Jesus for three years now, and they're still as dumb as you and I. They're still as clueless as all of us. They're following Jesus around, talking to him personally, sleeping around the campfire every night with him, having their meals with him, asking him any question they want to answer. Clearly, they're asking any question they want an answer for. And Jesus says, unless you guys are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You're not getting in unless there's some changes in you guys. You're not getting in. You're not even getting close unless there are some real big changes in the way you're going about your life. You're going to have to become like little children. Now, you've seen little children, right? This next line ought to probably strike at the heart of every teacher who's ever taught elementary school. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Just for the teachers now, anybody who's taught an elementary school class, you kids can plug your ears if you'd like for a minute. Are they all that humble? This is the problem with this passage. Anybody who knows a little kid knows this, that right there doesn't make any sense. Humbles himself and becomes like, this is a little kid right here. I won! I beat you, 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 I beat you. Okay, you beat me. They're not all that humble, are they? They're just as sinful as their rotten parents. Maybe a little worse. So what is Jesus talking about? If you humble yourself and become like a little child. If you humble yourself and become like a little child, not little children are humble, sweet, darling things all the time. That's what we have said. I've heard this preached. Children are humble. Children are so lovable. Children don't sin. Baloney. I didn't actually just plan this because you guys were going to be here. You just, Holy Spirit moment. God works out his plans as he designs. It's true, though. Kids are no more humble than their parents. In fact, sometimes they're worse. At least their parents have the good sense not to always say what comes to mind. So what is he talking about? Desire of Ages chapter, or page 437 has this list. Children, in their simplicity, their self-forgetfulness, and their confiding love are the example that Jesus sets before us. Simplicity? I would buy that one. 
There's a simple nature to children, especially the little ones. It's really awesome when you take a little kid to the park and they're wandering along and they're picking those, those little weed flowers. You know, they'll pick anything. Dandelion, pull that yellow flower out. Look, mom, a flower. Mom, look. And mom's like, at least that one won't spread seeds. Those little tiny flowers that grow on the clover, they pick those, bring them to their mom. I have the first gift my, oldest, or my youngest son ever gave me. It's in my, in my uh, this is a parental thing. You kids won't understand until later. It's in my desk, top right drawer in a plastic bag. It's about a dozen pyracantha berries. You know those things are poisonous, right? But he was just a little tight. He was probably less than two years old, walking down the street with his mom, saw these red berries on this plant, wanted to stop and pick some. So mom's saying, why do you want to pick those? You shouldn't eat those. Those aren't good for you. Oh, no, I want to pick them for daddy. Well, daddy eat them. They're not good for him either. I don't know why he bought it, but he, he brought them thing, the things all the way home in his sweaty little two-year-old kid hand. Oh, here, Daddy. This is for you. Poisonous berries. <laughs> but there's a simplicity to the way you look at the world when you're young. There's a simplicity to the joys that you find. There's something that if we could get back in contact with that, that gasp at every sunrise would bless our lives. Self-forgetful. This self-forgetful thing is an interesting one. Because what happens is, they'll lose themselves in something. They'll lose themselves in a relationship. Sometimes even with you. They'll, they'll, they'll forget themselves. It's not your 17-year-old daughter who typically comes running out onto the driveway to greet you when you get home. But your 7-year-old might mommy they're wearing their shirt that they've slobbered on and they've got food running down the front of it they're wearing those shorts that are kind of on kind of off they don't care self forgetfully they come running <clears throat> because they've <clears throat> they've seen something better something more important than the way they look and they come rushing out to greet you smearing the cheerios all over the shirt that you're wearing slobbering that big wet kiss down your face. Self-forgetful. Confiding love. When a kid comes up to you and confesses their affection, there's nothing tied to it but their affection. When a child comes up to you and they say, I love you, Grandpa, we just melt into a pile. When a little kid comes up to you and says, I love you, and, it, and, and you, those of you who are big sisters and brothers know this is true for you too. You guys melt just like the rest of us. When your little brother or sister, your little nieces and nephews, your little cousins come up to you and they tell you love you, you know that's coming from a place that has nothing else in the agenda. Just an expression of their love. Now can you humble yourself and become like a little child? Are these kinds of, the kinds of directions and goals we can put forth? Okay. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, God says this, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What do the three little dots mean? I skipped some stuff. There's some more stuff. <clears throat> but on this one, 
will I look on him who is poor and and of contrite spirit and trembles at my words. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. Then he opened his mouth saying to them and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are contrite, those who are poor in spirit, those who don't think too highly of themselves. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? How does this compare? Son of the morning, for you have said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. You know, see, one of the reasons I think Jesus is taking a moment to pull a child aside, talk to the disciples and point out this child, try to talk to the disciples about the change of heart that they need, is that the root of the problem goes all the way back to the very first sin. That the root of this problem is rooted in the way Satan went about his business, not in the way God goes about his business. You see, the transformation of this kingdom of heaven thinking is a transformation at the, at the soul of who we are. This is what set wrong in our hearts and in our lives when sin became the norm for our hearts and our lives. When we became selfish, when we became self-absorbed, when we became about what we want, when we became about pride, when we became about our, our stuff and our self-esteem and getting only our way. When that crept into who we were, it crept in from this location. Here was Lucifer, son of the morning, a covering cherub who stood next to God, right in the very presence of God. And he would say, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. You know what this is? I will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't it? And it is the unfortunate taproot of our own heart. From that place, we need to be converted. From that place, we need to find a different direction. From that place, we need to recognize that God has a different plan and a different kind of kingdom. In chapter 18, verse 6, he brings the story a little further about the little ones, and he says, anyone who causes one of these little ones to sin is danger of hell fire. A little article from the Review of Herald, 1895, but note the date. April 16th. April 16th used to be nothing before. Now it's the day after tax day. The little ones here referred to who believe in Christ are not simply those young in years, but little in Christ. There is a warning contained in these words. Again, ellipse. Lest we shall be unforgiving and exacting and judge and condemn others and thus discourage them. You see, part of this taproot of wanting to be great is a condemnation of others. Because if I can get enough of you knocked down, I can climb up. 
And that starts with little children by second or third grade. That competitiveness, that it's the core of who we are. That desire to get ahead, to get ahead of someone else. To push someone to the back of the line so I can move to the front of the line. That's the big scary part of what Jesus is talking about. Unless we are converted and humble ourselves and become like little children who are knowingly dependent, knowingly dependent, forgiving and accepting, unless we become like Jesus, unless we choose to allow ourselves to be humble and to be more like a child, more dependent upon God, more aware of the, of the needs of others for our forgiveness, more accepting of others, lest we become more like children, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The apostle stands at this moment, this bridge. The zeal of the nation is rising. Frustration and anger is becoming common. It's shouted out on the radio. It's shouted out in the music. It's shouted out in the streets and on television. People are constantly fighting, arguing, complaining, back and forth, back and forth. If you get your way, I won't get my way. If you get your stuff, I won't get any stuff. I want to take your stuff and make it my stuff. If I have to take it by force, I will. This country doesn't belong to you. It belongs to people like me. It's becoming more and more the nature of the zealous in the society to speak out, to be heard. There's no get along with each other out there. There's state your opinion and get it out. Get it out on the Internet. Post it on your Facebook page. Stick it into somebody's face in your Instagram. Make a video and put it out on YouTube. Shout your argument out to the world. Let's all just stand up and yell at each other. Zeal is rising. People are fighting. People are arguing. The two branches of the Christian church, or the two branches of the Jewish church, Christianity and traditional Judaism, are at odds with each other. And as the zeal gets stronger, the separation gets greater. And we live in the same time. The noise is constant now, isn't it? Everybody's shouting. So few people are whispering. And the taproot of the sinful nature starts to grow and wants to flower. And Jesus says that will lead you nowhere. For eternity. You will not ever enter into the kingdom of heaven if you're all about yourself. If you're all about getting your own way and only your way, if you're all about yourself, you're not going to get there. He said instead, be like your father. Brings the rain on the evil and the good. 
who treats people who love him well, who treats people who hate him well, who's humble enough to be gentle in spirit, to be kind, to be gracious, to be forgiving. Being like God is to recognize that you belong to a different kingdom. A kingdom whose rules are different. Whose ruler is humble. Whose goal is not just a transformation of your behavior, but a change of your heart. So that your motivations change. Not just your actions. Therefore, whoever humbles himself becomes as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray.